Well, Merry Christmas. Christmas. It's good to see all you guys here today. Um, Excited to be able to talk to you about what I have the opportunity to talk to you about. But before I do that, uh, I want to talk to the kids. Can we do that real quick? All right, here's what we're going to do. Kids, I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. And the question is going to be, how excited are you that Santa Claus is coming? All right. And then, whoa, wait, hold on, hold on. All right. And, and on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to show and demonstrate how excited you are. So if you're parents, you might want to put your hands. So you're going to scream as loud as you can, kids. All right. So you're going to put your hands over your ears if you need to, parents. All right. Here we go. I'm going to give you the count of three. All right. Here we go. Kids, how excited are you that Santa's coming? One, two, three. Wow. That was super excited. Man, I think you guys are going to have great Christmases. Now be quiet. Okay? (laughs) All right. Here we go. 2,000 years ago, uh, there was a child born into a small Galilean town called Bethlehem. He would be a child who would split history. He would introduce a concept that would change the course of history, including the early Christians who first had their experience with him. In fact, the story actually starts before that with a guy named Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was one of the most famous characters and is one of the most famous characters in history. He actually had an adoptive son. His name was Octavius. And Octavius was um, gifted at all kinds of things. And because Julius Caesar had no heir to pass down the kingdom to, he adopted Octavius as his own. And when he did that, Octavius became not just the gifted person that he was, but he became, when Julius Caesar died, the Roman emperor. Now, not before, this caused a huge war between uh, Augustus Caesar, who would become known, Octavius would become known as Augustus Caesar. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he also had a war to fight in order to be able to consolidate the kingdom under his own power with a man named Mark Antony. Mark Antony and uh, Octavius fight back and forth for years and years and years. And the concluding result of this was that Caesar Augustus, or Octavius, ends up winning the battle. But in doing so, for a matter of, uh, you know, year after year after year, the entire Mediterranean world was decimated by this war. It was decimated by the taxes that were levied upon the people. It was decimated by the fact that the people could not and would not understand what it meant to try to fight a war to win for just the power and the sake of privilege of two men. And yet, at the same time, you find these people living in the shadow of what they were. They're poor, they're suffering, they're going through hardship, and this is the world that Jesus was born into. The world that Jesus was born into was looking for a savior, and they turned to the wrong savior. Because what happens here is at the the birth of Jesus, or even prior to the birth of Jesus, when Octavius wins this battle, he becomes not just Caesar, which was the title for king of the Roman world, but he became the most august Caesar. The word august had been used to describe sacred relics and objects. Before that, no one had ever used the term august to describe any person whatsoever. And so when, when Octavius becomes king, he calls himself and takes on the mantle not just of king, but of the most august king. In other words, he was claiming to be divine. His father or stepfather, Julius Caesar, was after his death declared to be divine. In other words, a son of God. And so, being alive still, what happens here is that Augustus Caesar takes on the mantle of the Son of God, and the people look at him, and he's an incredible military leader, an incredible political leader. He's an incredible... If you've studied leadership on any level, you've come across his name before, because he's one of the greatest leaders in history. 
Augustus Caesar led uh, Rome into 200 years of peace. It was, called, it was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. For 200 years, there would be Caesars and Augustus Caesars after him. But they looked to somebody who would provide a temporary help. Even though it was long and it was well-suited, eventually the peace of Rome would go away. In the intervening time, Jesus has lived and died on this planet. Obviously, he still lives. But he has lived and he has died. And the people called Christians, eventually, that would be the followers of Jesus from that point on would change the entirety of the world. And it was because of what Jesus did. He introduced a concept that I'm going to introduce to you guys today. And this concept changed the face of history. It changed the face and course of dynasties. And it changed, in fact, the Roman world itself. Christianity went from an illegal religion in the first century all the way to being, um, in the third century, the official religion of Rome. The emperor himself converted to Christianity. His name was Constantine. When Jesus was born into the world, they needed a savior. The world was racked with war and debt and fear and people did not have homes. They were displaced, and they were looking for a savior, and they put all their faith, basically, in Augustus Caesar, and that was a fail. It was a fail because they really, really didn't get the needs of their hearts met. In other words, you could have social peace, but you don't have inner peace, and Jesus came not to bring social peace. He came to bring inner peace. He came to bring something that we would not, that never been put forward before, and here's the idea. Prior to the idea that Jesus introduced, the entire world, as well as not just this, but ancient Egypt and all of these civilizations before, lived under one basic philosophical principle. You get what you deserve, and you deserve what you get. You get what you deserve, and you deserve what you get. In fact, America is, in many ways, built upon the same principle, right? We have this idea, like, you know, if we work really hard, you deserve what you get, and you get what you deserve, right? But the problem with that philosophy as a world philosophy, or even as a personal philosophy, is that it doesn't work. And we've tried it over and over again, because only the rich and only those who succeed and only those who have everything end up feeling good about themselves, while the rest of us who fall short of that ultimately end up feeling what? Like we are apart from and not enough. Because it's true that you get what you deserve, and you deserve what you get. There's a sharp and biting side to that philosophy. And when Jesus came in, he said, I don't want us to live by this philosophy anymore. I want us to live by something different. And while Jesus was, a, was much more than a moral teacher, he came to leave behind a principle, this principle called grace. I want you to look up on the screen, and I want you to see a definition. The first definition is the theological definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor from God. But those are churchy Bible terms that we don't always use. And so for some of us, especially like if you're here today and your friends, you know, invited you or your mom invited you or your dad or your buddy or whoever, and they're like, hey, we'll go out afterwards and have dinner. If you're here for the dinner, then like <laughs> that's a legit reason to come. I mean, make them pay, take you somewhere nice. All right. But if you're here for the dinner, then recognize that these words, some, we recognize that these words don't sometimes mean anything to you. So let's just break them down. Grace is unmerited favor from God. What does that mean? Well, grace is unmerited, meaning undeserved favor from God. Grace is favor, unmerited, undeserved favor from God. Grace is undeserved blessing from God. See, what Jesus introduced was a whole different way of the way that we related to God. Prior to this, you have these great uh, gods of the history that lived up on these high and holy hills like Mount Olympus. And if you had any opportunity to rise to the level and ascend the mountain, then you could be okay. But the reality is nobody ever actually did that. 
And as a result of that, everybody fell short of the glory of God. And then Jesus comes and he says, listen, I am from the Father, sent into the world, so God himself comes down from the mountain and walks among us. Now, you would think that when, when Jesus came, he would come with all kinds of power and authority because that's what you do when you're a powerful person. You consolidate power. That's what you do. Julius Caesar did it. Augustus Caesar did it. Mark Antony tried to do it. But Jesus was born into a humble town in which he was in a backwater uh, hotel where he was around animals and all kinds of just, this is the most ignoble possible birth of a king that you could possibly imagine. But Jesus' kingship would be something very, very different than the world would experience because it would be a kingship based upon the lordship and kingship of God himself and Jesus' his ambassador. And so I want you to see this because this is super important. So when Jesus comes in and he introduces this idea of grace, people start looking at each other and going, this is different. Like this doesn't feel like you deserve what you get and you get what you deserve. Because we've all fallen short of that. We know what that looks like because it has a biting edge to it. So when Jesus comes in and he starts preaching grace to people, people start thinking differently about themselves and about God. And so the early Christians struggled to put this down on paper and try to figure out, like, what is this? Like, what's happening to us right now? Like, what's fundamentally changing about us as we follow this Jesus character? And so they began to write words like these. And they were faulty and, and, and somewhat stumbling, halting type words when the Apostle Paul wrote, we are new creations. It was, it was almost as if, as, they, as if they're looking at one another and they're following Jesus and they're trusting in Jesus for their, for their hope, their peace, their security. And not just a hope of peace and security that lasts here, but one that goes on forever and ever and ever in the kingdom of God. He said, we are new creations. So it was almost as if God came down and said, I'm gonna send you my ambassador, I'm gonna send you my son Jesus and he's going to be for you what you cannot be for yourself. He's going to be your hope. He's going to be your strength. He's going to be your portion. He's going to be everything that you need to be whole one day. But, but catch this. This is super important. You're going to be a totally different person at the end. Like this is not self-improvement. This is dying to an old self and being born to a new self. And these Christians were trying to put these words down. And they said, we are new creations. The old things have passed and new things have come. The old things have passed and the new things have come. In other words, we are not defined by what happened before. We're defined by what God does in us and through us and how he sees us. Grace is the simple fact that you get undeserved blessing from God. That means that you're not trying to scale the mountain to him to say, hey, God, can you love me some point? Because here's the problem with that, and you know this, even though you've probably never put it in these terms. Like, when is enough enough? How much good is good enough? I mean, what if you're standing in heaven and there's Mother Teresa and she's sitting there right before you and you've got to come in and plead your case in front of Mother Teresa. You're going to fail. Like, it's not going to be good. You're going to stand in line and they're going to go, oh, you, you know, I mean, like that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a good thing. It's all relative. It's relative to the person around. No, no, no. God set up the standard and it was, all of you have messed up. All of you have screwed up. And the good news is that the Father in heaven is looking down saying, I love you so much that I choose you anyway. There is a kind of love that says, if you do this for me, I'll love you. And there is real love, which says, I choose you no matter what. It is a love that comes no matter hell or high water. It is there and it is constant 
and it is persevering. It is the love that comes from the Father who said, I love you so much that I'm going to send myself in the form of Jesus, and I'm going to walk among you, and I'm going to live among you, and I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to give you grace. And the reason why these people became new creations is because they fundamentally began to see themselves and define themselves through a different lens. They looked at themselves and said, what matters most is not what everyone else thinks about me or what the culture teaches me. What what matters most is what my Father in heaven says about me. And when you grasp that principle in your heart, not intellectually, but in your heart, when you grasp that principle in your heart, everything begins to change. It actually changes the way that you see yourself. You don't look for evidence to support the things that you are. You look to God and say, who do you want me to be? So my wife and I, we celebrated uh, 25 years of marriage this week. I know. And so we went to this really, really fancy hotel uh, for a few days, and it was awesome. And and we got upgraded to a suite, right? We didn't deserve it, but we got upgraded to a suite. I mean, this thing was awesome. Their bathroom was as big as my bedroom, right? So Kelly goes in there. She's like, check this out. Oh, my gosh. There's a full-length mirror. She goes, Mike, you're fat. Come in here. No, I'm just kidding. She calls me Pastor Mike when we're alone. But, 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 but serious. <laughs> she goes, look at this mirror. She goes, this mirror takes 25 pounds off of you. And I'm like, it does. I'm like, stand before it. I'm like, hello, Brad Pitt. You know, I'm like, that's awesome. Like, that is so cool. It adds hair and youth and talent. And, uh, and it's, like, it's like a really great mirror. But it lies to you. The, the mirror lies to you. The, the, the worst thing in my life would be walking around like I'm Brad Pitt and I'm really Mike Adkins, right? Like, that's not cool. I want to know who I am. And the way that we know who we are is not to hold up a mirror to ourselves, but to hold up a mirror to God and say, what am I supposed to look like, Father? And Jesus shows us, and this is the simplest possible way that I can put this into language, hopefully, that makes sense for all of us. But it describes an experience that all of us have gone through. Let me, let me give you a, a scripture passage that describes it really, really well. John chapter 1, verse 14. It'll be up there on the screen. John was an apostle of Jesus, which sounds really fancy. But actually, one of the better uh, titles that he has uh, comes from Jesus himself, that, that John is Jesus' best friend. John is Jesus' best friend in this life. And John writes this about Jesus. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to look at it in a different version. This is the amplified version, it just gives you a little bit more robust understanding. And the word Jesus became flesh. So Jesus existed with the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit. And the Father says, How are we? going to deal with this, you deserve what you get, you get what you deserve, philosophy that's all over the world. How are we going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with this idea that if you just try harder, you can get to us when no one's ever done that? Let's put you in flesh, Jesus. Let's let you walk around among them for 33 years, live a sinless life, a perfect life, give them as an example what it looks like. And and by the way, when you go, I want you to take upon yourself all the punishment that every single person on the planet would ever deserve if they were to stand before me as a sinner. And look at what he says. And the word Jesus became flesh and lived among us, and we actually saw his glory. 
glory as belongs to the one and only begotten Son of the Father, the Son who is truly unique, the only one of his kind, who is full of grace and truth, absolutely free of deception. That's who Jesus is. That he came to be for us what we cannot be. Now, look at the two things that he came to do. Right, He came from the Father, from glory, but he was full of grace and truth. So we've seen the first part of this. Grace changes us. In fact, what I'm going to say is that grace is the thing that heals us. Grace reminds us that the world does not define us, but that we have a heavenly Father who looks down from, uh, from heaven to look at us and says, I choose you in the middle of all your sin and brokenness. You don't have to come to me because I'm coming to you. And when we do that, it changes everything about us. And then we have this truth. And this truth is not what heals us. The truth is what frees us. The truth is what frees us. It shows us the things that we hold on to. And here's, here's, here's how I'm going to explain this. It shows us the things that we hold on to that were never, ever meant to make us whole. So if we think, imagine God here, we've spent most of our life as people. And by the way, this is a no judgment because I promise you I'm one of the chief sinners in the room. But here, we spent most of our life taking steps away from God, kind of doing our own thing. This is the very definition of sin. Doing our own thing, walking away, and missing the mark. But as we walk away, because we were created by God to love certain things, we're called to love relationships, we're called to love people, called to love some stuff that he brings by us, we're called to love our, our uh, um, ideas, we're called to love music and art and all those kind of things, beautiful things that add a ton to our life. But as we've been walking away from God, what happens is we hold on to these things, not as gifts from God, but as God himself. And the problem with that is that when you hold on to a person and you assume or presume that they're going to make you whole someday, it ends up strangling the life out of that relationship. And watch this, this is so important. And so what ends up happening is we hold on to these things because every one of us in the room was designed by God to love stuff. But in, what ends up happening, and I'm not telling you something you don't know because you've experienced it before, is that the further and further you walk away from God, the more disintegrated your life becomes. It's just like things just start falling apart and you start falling apart. Your soul is not connected to the life that designed it. And as a result of that, I'm holding on to things that don't give me life and that causes more pain and more suffering and more hardship. And as a result, I find myself in a status, in a status of brokenness that God never wanted me to be in. One day, some Christians reach out to me because I didn't grow up in the church and I had no religious background. I mean, it is always funny for me to think about me being up here on the stage because my family didn't come from that kind of stuff. They didn't come from religion. They didn't come from spirituality. They didn't come from God in any way. And so some Christians reached out to me when my life had fallen apart and things were disintegrating. And here's what they did. They said, number one, God sees you differently than you see yourself. Like he loves you, Mike. And I'm like, there's no way God loves me. Like I'm a drunk, sleeping around fool. He loves me. He does. And then they said, here's what we want you to do. Take a step. And that's all I did was took one step. I said, I'm going to trust him, and I don't even know what that means. And then I woke up the next day, and I took another step, and I started trusting him and started trusting him and built this life on taking steps and trusting God in such a way that the closer that I've gotten to God, the more that my life becomes whole. And here's the principle. The farther apart you are from God, the more disintegrated your life becomes, such that eventually it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and there's less and less and less and less of you. Or 
we take steps toward God in which God says, now, son, I've given you grace. Now I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to help conform your life to what my son Jesus looked like because he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is exactly what I would look like if I were there. And I want you to look like him. And the more that you look like him, the more whole life becomes. And that's not to say that as a Christian who is close to God that you're pain-free. That's to say that you are whole. You can still be whole and filled, with broke, and filled with pain because the world that we live in is filled with pain. But now what I have is I have God as my resource. And he makes me whole. And he turns the circumstances of my life around. And he changes me. And people in this room have experienced this over and over and over again. And all we can say is that we're new creations. We're not the same old people that we used to be. We've broken ties with the past. And we've begun to walk in a totally new and radical different way. Why? Because God's doing something in us. Because we have grace. We don't define ourselves by the world anymore. We have truth because we need to be taught. And so some of you guys are like, what do I do next? Like, what's the next thing for that? The first step to do, first step in all of this is to believe and trust. The word belief and trust, they're different words, but they mean something similar. Trust means that you are going to risk to trust to love him as he loves you. Listen, it's the same thing in all kinds of relationships that we're in. If we're in a relationship with somebody else, there's always the risk. Why? Because when I give you my heart and you give me your heart, there's a risk to that. Because once I've given you my heart, you can hurt me. In that very same way, I think that's the reason why many, many people don't take their first step toward God. It's fear. It's worry. Like, I'm not sure he's good. I'm not sure I trust him. My dad wasn't good. Can he be a good father? Maybe, and, I, and this in no way is meant to disparage you in any way, maybe you could open your mind. I had a conversation with a woman after the first service. She said, Mike, I've been at this church for three months. I can't believe that I love church. And I'm like, me neither. I can't, I can't believe it either. I can't believe I love church. I can't believe you do either. And what she was saying is like, she, she comes from my background, like no background of Christian faith. She told her friends, like, I go to church now. And they're like, why? And she's like, because I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm changing. Because the more that, we dri- our dr- more that we drive towards Jesus, the more whole we become. And as we become whole, not only do we know more about him, but we know more about us. Because we're the people that God created us to be. So the first thing that you do is you trust him. You simply take a step. And that doesn't mean you're going to know everything. You're not. It just means that you take a step and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I believe you're out there and I want to trust you with my life. And you take that step. We've seen people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I mean, thousands of people over the years of grace have taken that step toward Jesus. Hundreds in this room have taken that step toward Jesus. And if that's a fearful and worrisome thing for you, just join the club because it was for us too. But here's the thing. As you take steps toward Jesus, the closer you get to him, the more whole you become, the more you begin to understand yourself, and the more that these old things that have held onto your life forever and ever and ever become old things, and you are a new creation. So my challenge to you is don't walk through the Christmas service and then walk out and go, hey, that was good. Walk out and ask yourself the question, what does Jesus and what could Jesus mean to me? Is it possibly true that these first century Christians that looked at one another and said, I think there's something to this, that the world may not really be based upon a a principle that says you deserve what you get and you get what you deserve. 
but maybe it's based upon a principle that says God loves us in spite of our wickedness, in spite of our sins, in spite of our fears, in spite of our worries. God loved us, and he sent his son Jesus into the world. That is the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus comes to bring to you today. Do not walk out of here unchanged. Don't let it be a lecture. Let it be something that touches the deepest recesses of who you are, because I promise you, you can talk to hundreds of people in this church who have seen life change as a result of it. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you came to rescue us from our sins. Thank you that you rescued us from ourselves. We ask God that just in the plain preaching of the gospel that your spirit would change our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to see, Lord, that sometimes, sometimes, God, we have fallen short of what is perfect. And we don't want to be people who live as people who we deserve what we get and we get what we deserve. We want to be people who are filled with grace and truth. People who speak grace in such a way that changes people's hearts and minds, allows us to minister to people and to change people's hearts and minds. God, we all can do that. That's not something that I do. That's something that we all do, God, as we give grace to other people. But also let us give truth as well, Lord. The truth that sets us free from the distractions of this world. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.